0: Welcome to the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence based research and cutting edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast, evidence informed, practical based. This is season two, episode number 43, and I'm very excited to talk all things diabetes and nutrition today with expert Dr. Nicola Guess. In this episode, Nicola will discuss the current diabetes epidemic across the world. She will define prediabetes and diabetes type 2, as well as outline the current guidelines for the prevention of type 2 diabetes. She'll also discuss why people are struggling to adhere to their nutrition plans, how weight loss is the biggest goal when it comes to type 2 diabetes prevention, and how different nutrition strategies, low-carb, Mediterranean diet, intermittent fasting, low-energy diets, may also be supportive to help prevent the development of type 2 diabetes. Nika will also touch on how the rate of weight loss appears to be an independent driver of a glucose-lowering effect. As well as the importance of the pulsatile and first insulin responses in this whole story. Finally, she'll round things out with her thoughts on how to stem the tide of our current diabetes epidemic. Some refreshing and very insightful comments here from Nicola, uh, whose work as a dietitian with diabetic patients in the clinical practice and seeing the problem firsthand has no doubt sparked her interest in fantastic research in this space, as well as providing hopefully providing type 2 diabetes patients with more choices when it comes to nutrition strategies. You can link to the papers discussed here in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. And if you are interested in more on this topic, then you can circle back to season one, episode number 15 with diabetes expert, Dr. Jason Fung on the role of hyperinsulinemia and intermittent fasting. You could check out season two, episode number one with Mr. Danny Lennon on the Key Weight Loss Principles for Long-Term Success, and of course, my recent discussion on weight loss and the impact of breakfast with expert Dr. Javier Gonzalez. Of course, you can check out all these experts and more on YouTube, iTunes, or your favorite podcatching platform. And of course, while you're there, please subscribe and you won't miss any of the phenomenal guests we've got lined up for the rest of this year. Okay, before we get started, a quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. No sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. What is it? Totem Sport is the world's purest deep ocean mineral water. Collected from natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sport drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. The research on deep ocean mineral water is ramping up a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink, tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. Check out totemsport.co.uk and defy the norm. Okay, on to the show, Season 2, Episode 43. Enjoy. My guest today is Dr. Nicola Guess, a registered dietitian with a PhD in the dietary management of prediabetes from Imperial College London. She is currently a lecturer in the Department of Nutritional Sciences at King's College London, where her research focuses on the role of diet in the prevention and management of type two diabetes. Nicola, appreciate you taking the time today.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Nice to talk to you.
0: Terrific. Well, listen. Before we uh, dive into the topic of type two diabetes nutrition and the state of the research. Um, could you maybe tell listeners a little more about how you became interested in this field?
1: Sure. Um, so I, my first job was as your kind of bog-standard dietitian, giving dietary advice, um, and I specialized just due to the prevalence of type 2 diabetes um, in type 2 diabetes management. And what I was struck by when I was talking to patients was really how little effect I was having on them. Um, so there's a measure of glucose called hemoglobin A1c. And I would be seeing these patients um, and I didn't seem to be having much, I didn't think I didn't think I was much help for them. Um, and so I wanted to get into research to try to look for better ways of helping these patients manage their type 2 diabetes.
0: Yeah, that's something that definitely I think a lot of docs and practitioners and dieticians have experienced as well. Um, so happy to jump into this conversation with you today. And of course, according to some of the recent research, especially in the USA, about 50% of the population are either pre-diabetic or diabetic. So maybe you could start listeners off on the same page and define the terms pre-diabetes and diabetes.
1: Sure. Um, so type 2 diabetes is diagnosed when your fasting blood glucose goes above 7 Um, Or there is something where your two-hour glucose, after a glucose tolerance test, is 11.1. So your glucose has got to be pretty high to meet the definition of type 2. Prior to developing type 2, there is a condition called prediabetes, which is basically where your blood glucose is high, but not high enough to meet the threshold for type 2 diabetes. Now, what's quite interesting is prediabetes actually is an umbrella term for at least two conditions. So for example, you could have elevated fasting glucose, and that might be between 6.1 and 6.9. So remember, type 2 diabetes is 7. You can have a fasting blood glucose of uh, 6.1 to 6.9, but your two-hour glucose is perfectly normal. So in other Mm -hmm. words, all of your management of glucose is perfectly normal when you're fasting. Sorry, it's elevated when you're fasting, but it's perfectly fine when you eat. Now, on the other hand, some people have perfectly normal fasting glucose, but it all goes um, hyperglycemic after they eat. So they can manage glucose in the fasting state, but glucose starts getting elevated after they eat. So pre-diabetes sort of develops like that. You might have either elevated fasting or elevated two hours. Um, And what's quite interesting for me is it's become apparent those are two different conditions.
0: That's really interesting, yes, because it's definitely something that um, folks tend to just lump pre-diabetes into one umbrella versus having these two separate conditions. So, um, Nicola, the current guidelines for the prevention of type 2 diabetes in people at high risk are, are based around achieving that weight loss, you know, moderate weight loss, 3 to 7% um, via dietary changes and increasing physical activity. So can you outline what the recommended dietary guidelines are at the moment?
1: Yes. I mean, so this has come from… Um, A series of large clinical trials, so really well executed clinical trials done in China, Finland, um, the United States, um, Sweden, Japan, all over, and India. And what they have shown conclusively is that, like you said, moderate weight loss, five to seven percent, so that might be four to six kilos, helps to at least delay or prevent type 2 diabetes. Now, there is only one dietary pattern that has been tested in all of those trials, and that is basically your typical high-carbohydrate, high-fibre, low-fat, low-saturated-fat diet. Um, And so that's been one of the frustrations for me, and it's an active area of my research that I think we could be offering patients more variety. Um, And let me just reiterate, it's it's likely that 90% of the effect on prevention is due to weight loss. So it doesn't really matter what diet you lose; it's got to achieve weight loss. Um, but by the same token, I'm also interested in the idea that some foods themselves might also help prevent type two, and figuring out ways we can package all of that together.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. And you know, last year I had Dr. Jason Fung on, and he was, you know, telling stories about his patients coming in who are you know type two diabetic and who need insulin. And of course, them recounting to him that, of course, they're, they're gaining more weight by taking this medication. And as you've mentioned, you know 90 percent of this whole story is kind of being able to lose weight. And of course, in, the, in your paper, you also highlight that, you, know, even in these situations when the participants are monitored, you know they, they lose weight, they start to reverse their condition, but you know, 15 years after the end of these trials, the majority are still going on to develop type 2 diabetes. So um, you know, what's going on here? Why are participants struggling to, uh, to stick with these plans?
1: Um, I mean, I think the major thing is probably weight regain. Um, If you look at any dietary trial ever done, not just in prevention of type 2, but any weight loss trial, um, even weight loss trials with pharmaceuticals, um, some of which were effective but are no longer available, every trial ever does people lose weight, they kind of plateau and they regain. Now, that's on average. Obviously, some people can lose weight and keep it off. Um, And really, the secret is individualization. Um, Maintaining weight loss is incredibly, incredibly difficult. Um, And the people who succeed, um, and I I take my hat off to them because it is so difficult to achieve, they just manage to find a way that works for them. Um, So I think the first thing that is happening is that people are regaining weight. And so Personally, I think if we can be offering people a greater variety of dietary approaches, um, that might help personalization. Um, The second thing, and this is, again, another active area of my research, the data clearly suggests that moderate weight loss doesn't improve insulin secretion. And we'll call it beta cell function. Um, So let me explain this. So type type, type 2 diabetes develops because of two main pathophysiological defects. So the first is insulin resistance. So the tissues, um, whether it's the muscle, the liver, or the adipose tissue, perhaps, become resistant to the effects of insulin. The second thing that happens is you get what we call beta cell or dysfunction and then failure. Now, your beta cells are the cells in your pancreas that produce insulin. And what we know is they start to decline very early in the development of type 2. So you see that already in pre-diabetes. And in fact, what defines the transition from pre-diabetes to type 2 diabetes is beta cell failure. In other words, the pancreas gets to a point where it simply can't produce enough insulin anymore. And what we know is that weight loss of, say, 5 to 7%, yes, it improves insulin sensitivity, but there's no evidence it improves beta cell function. Um, And let me reiterate the importance of this. Like I said, beta cell failure is basically the transition between pre-diabetes and type 2. And yet we have interventions that actually aren't doing anything to improve beta cell function. Um, So, again, another real interest of mine is looking at ways, diets that can do that. Um, And we've seen recently in type 2 diabetes. So when people get type 2, if they lose a massive amount of weight, um, probably around 15%, um, 13 to 15 kilos, even if you've got type 2, it can restore your beta cells. Incredible. Um, and, and personally, I think we should be offering this to people at risk of type 2 um, because it would probably be equally as effective.
0: Yeah, I mean, that idea of having of offering clients and patients different choices. I know in working with our sports, like Canada Basketball, that in terms of adherence, when people have a choice – uh, whether it's sport or, or nutrition or whatnot, then, then adherence is a lot higher. And of course, in your paper, you discuss different nutrition strategies for exactly that, for, for type 2 diabetes. So maybe uh, we can start with um, the low carbohydrate diet. So, how could this theoretically help to prevent the development of type 2 diabetes?
1: Sure. I mean, so like I said, it looks like the majority of the risk reduction in terms of diet is weight loss. And so regardless of how you achieve it, it's probably going to work the same way. Now, let me be clear, and I think this is uh, quite depressing. We don't yet have a low carb study in the prevention of type two. Um, so this is conjecture. Um, but all of the data we have so far suggests it's weight loss driving it. So my view is that any diet that helps a person lose weight is going to help prevent type two. Um, So, I think low carb seems to work really well for some people. Um, I know many people who've lost a ton of weight on it, um, and because they like the diet and it works for them, they have kept it off. Um, I also think there are other things about low carbohydrate diets that could potentially be interesting. Um, One of which there is this um, theory that something called glucotoxicity sorry, let me repeat that glucotoxicity um, basically, it's the idea that glucose itself above a certain concentration is toxic to the beta cells. And so if you think about it, like once you get to pre-diabetes, your blood glucose goes high. Once you get to type 2, it's even higher. And so what this theory suggests is that the elevated glucose in prediabetes and in type 2 itself is making beta cell function worsen. And so, you know, low-carb diets, if you go low enough, you can probably reduce um plasma glucose to a greater extent and so i think an interesting and testable hypothesis in humans is if you go on a low carb diet you massively reduce your blood glucose level does that help improve beta cell function um and i'm about to start a study in january february next year looking at that
0: fantastic yeah it is amazing with um a, a low carb approach obviously you know, calories matter. And, and folks who tend to go on a low-carb diet, they tend to eat more protein, they tend to eat more vegetables, um, all the highly processed foods that tend to make up a lot of the diet, things like grain-based desserts, breads, pizzas, sodas, you know, alcohol, all those things tend to come down. So it, it can be a nice heuristic for, for folks. But it, as you mentioned, it's definitely not going to be the only strategy. If there's any strategy that will help to promote weight loss uh, can definitely support this. So what about a Mediterranean dietary pattern? I know that's a term that's A little bit nebulous in the fact that there's so many different styles of Mediterranean, but how could it uh, potentially help to prevent uh, type 2 diabetes?
1: Sure. I mean, so this comes from a a trial called the PREDIMED trial. Um, It was a large uh, control trial done in Spain. Um, That that was done in people. Some had type 2, some were at high risk. It was primarily looking at cardiovascular disease. But they did run an analysis um, looking at the incidence of type 2 And what they found was that the Mediterranean style patterns, I'll come back to what they are, um, significantly reduced the incidence of type two compared to the control diet. And so I'll come back to what those are in a second. But what was so interesting about this study is that it wasn't due to weight loss because there were no differences in weight loss between the groups. And so this, again, is something I find fascinating because the entire paradigm for prevention of type two for 20 years has been about weight loss. Um, and so it's a very intriguing study, um, and there's lots to unpick. Um, so let me just come back to what those diets were. So the investigators had planned two Mediterranean diet style patterns. Um, so um, oil or lots of fish, vegetables, some red wine, um, a typical, I would say, Mediterranean diet, but they were supplemented. One of them was with extra virgin olive oil, So the participants were given a litre of extra virgin olive oil a week, and the other Mediterranean diet group had nuts. So they were given, I think it was about 30 grams of nuts per day. Now, the control group was supposed to be a Western dietary pattern. So the investigators wanted um, the people in the control group in Spain to kind of eat the way Brits do and Americans do. Now, of course, because it's Spain... Not easy
0: uh, to achieve, right, in Spain? (laughs)
1: Not easy to achieve, no. Um, And so the control group that was supposed to be an American or British kind of way of eating, Western way of eating, um, had 16, I think it was 16% of their calories from olive oil. I mean, that's insane. Like in Britain, we have on average 13, one, three milliliters um, per capita of olive oil um, compared to to 16% of calories. So they were having a Mediterranean diet, essentially, the control group was. Interesting. And, and so the, but the question then becomes, well, hold on a second, then, if they were all basically eating essentially the same diet, was it merely the supplemented foods that were having an effect? Um, and there's a brilliant editorial, when the paper came out in the New England Journal of Medicine, Linda Van Horn wrote a great editorial basically saying what's having the effect here. And it might just be um, something to do with that the non-nutritive compounds of, say, nuts and extra virgin olive oil, because, for example, nuts have, um, yes, fiber, and we know what that is, but they also have a bunch of polyphenols and compounds in them that we don't necessarily have names for, but evidence is mounting that they do do seemingly miraculous things um, to vascular function, maybe to beta cell function, insulin sensitivity, and the same might be true of extra extra virgin um, olive oil. Because if the control group was having, I think, 17% of their calories, 16, 17% of their calories from olive oil, and the intervention group, I think, might have been having 19%, but it was extra virgin. So you've then got to ask yourself, well, what's the difference between olive oil and extra virgin olive oil? It's all, again, all of those compounds, maybe uh, polyphenolic compounds that might actually be having these subtle effects Um, on the underlying pathophysiology of type 2 without relying on weight loss Um, and this is definitely something that we need further research on.
0: Yeah it's definitely fascinating stuff and Nicola you know what role does some of the things obviously they weren't eating have in this as well in terms of just you know recent studies showed about again yeah 50% of the UK households uh, and similar in the US you know is spent on ultra-processed food and as you mentioned I think in um, in Spain, it was around 18% or something. So, you know, the, the fact that the controls not eating all of these processed foods that we'd see in the West, um, you know, how is that playing into the story as well?
1: Well, so, so it's really hard to tell from that study because basically the, the food consumption between all three groups was similar. So you can't really determine from that study whether it's processed foods. Um, and here's the thing about processed foods I'm going to just. You'd say what I think, and it's not really based on much data. Because guess what? Amazingly, we don't have that much data on what processed foods per se are doing. Um, I mean, certainly, what happens with processed foods and packaged foods is people simply eat too much.
0: For sure. If you
1: if you give someone a bag of crisps or chips um, that is eighty grams, they'll eat the eighty grams. If you give them thirty five grams, they'll eat thirty five grams. If it is a package. For whatever reasons, despite our intentions, we will eat that. So one thing certainly about processed foods is they're so easy to overconsume and we do that. Um, But I think Kevin Hall is starting a study looking at independent of weight gain, the effect of uh, processed foods, highly processed foods on insulin sensitivity um and those data are going to be really interesting um because if it's if it's not just to do with weight and it's to do with the level of processing in our food products um then that has serious implications for dietary guidelines
0: absolutely yeah i mean it's definitely something uh, looking forward to that as well because obviously you know the last 40 or 50 years massive explosion in all the processed foods and obviously hyper palatable available everywhere so that food environment yeah plays such a huge role and Maybe that dovetails into the next question then, which is around the next dietary pattern of intermittent fasting. You know, how can this potentially help listeners or folks who are struggling with uh, pre diabetes or type two diabetes?
1: Sure. Um, so, intermittent fasting actually is challenging to um, talk about because there's no real definition. Um, so, for example, you could be intermittent fasting if you don't eat anything on one day of the week um, and eat normally on five. Um, some people may eat 400 calories a day on two days a week. Those days might be consecutive or separate. So there are different definitions. Um, and then, of course, we have time-restricted feeding, um, which is seems to be a very interesting area, but we don't have much research on, where people eat every day, but they restrict their food consumption to a window of time. Um, so it might be 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. they can eat. The rest of the time they don't. Um, So as far as any of the underlying pathophysiology, we can't make any conclusions yet, um, simply because all of the studies done are too different to make comparisons. Um, There are some intermittent fasting studies that show increases in insulin resistant. uh, Some show improvements. um, I think that's just to do with the protocol used. There was a very interesting study, it was was a small study, but but pretty compelling, um, that came out in Cell Metabolism, I think it was earlier this year, where it was obese males with pre-diabetes. It was a very carefully controlled study, um, so there was no weight loss or weight gain over the study. But in the intervention group, they were restricted, I think it was 8am to 2pm, and they could eat normally the rest of, or they couldn't eat the rest of the time, and then the control group, they could eat normally. And what those data showed, no differences in weight loss, but the intervention group. So if you restricted your feeding to 8 a.m. or from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m., you've got improvements in fat oxidation and improvements in insulin sensitivity. Um, So I think that's interesting. We need a lot more data because that was a very small study. Um, So I don't think yet we can say that intermittent fasting as a strategy um, is going to do anything special. But again, some folks like following it because it helps them lose weight and manage their weight loss. Um, so again, as a strategy, I think they're um, certainly something we could be offering patients.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that um, you know today folks getting up in the morning, early 6, 7 o'clock, and that's when they have their first meal. And of course, with technology and Netflix and everything else, people are continually eating snacking through the day and then having another snack before they go to bed on the couch so you know the time in which we're consuming food now just stretches to 14 16 18 hours a day so there's periods of giving the body a break and then allowing for some of that fat oxidation things to take place so it seems like there could be you know time-restricted feeding can be a, a nice heuristic for folks if it does help them to um control caloric intake um,
1: absolutely would you, would you
0: agree?
1: absolutely yes I, I definitely think so i mean i think number one um like you say, just restricting caloric intake, that that I think what's really hard is thinking all the time about what to eat, because we're so inundated with choice. And I just think the idea, you know, if it works for people of just saying, well, it's 2pm, I can't eat now, and you just kind of adjust to that. Um, But I definitely think time restricted feeding is particularly interesting. um, Because like you say, of this rest period that you have every day, um, whether, whether I mean, this is conjecture, whether it's giving beta cells a rest, whether it's letting insulin sensitivity restore. Um, and I think what we've got to figure out is ways, the optimal balance between time-restricted feeding and having a fun life. Um, and I've discussed the, the cell metabolism study with colleagues, and they were like, well, what kind of social life would you have if you can only eat in the morning? I mean, how do you have dinners with colleagues or go to a bar and watch the basketball, whatever it might mean. And so I For have sure. a couple of colleagues working elsewhere. There's a, there's a, a researcher in um, San Francisco who's looking at well, what happens if you eat later in the day. So eat nothing in the morning and maybe eat from 2, 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. How does that work? And I think that that data, again, is going to be interesting in giving people a, a sustainable way of following time-restricted feeding.
0: For sure, yeah. I mean, it's interesting when we look at even some of the uh, sports research around sort of that train low, sleep low strategies where somebody might wake up in the morning after a seven, eight, nine hour sleep. Uh, You know, liver glycogen levels are low. They go out to train. And of course, you know, fat oxidation increases. And in in some of the other research, they show that even having a protein shake doesn't impair that ability. So, you know, perhaps there's an opportunity for some of these folks to be having some, you know, more protein rich meals outside of that window. But uh, look forward to seeing some of that research come through. Um, Terrific. Well, I mean, there's another strategy which I think most people aren't really familiar with, but we'll often see, um, you know, a lot of doctors use this approach in terms of their weight loss programs. And that's a very low energy diet. Can you define that for folks and 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 let us know how that relates to potentially support for type two diabetes?
1: Absolutely. Yes. So, so a very low energy diet is defined as, as a diet with fewer than 800 calories. Um, so that's the definition, but I'd like to make two things clear. It's One, it looks like calorie restriction per se probably has some of the same effects, um, as does marked weight loss. So let me explain that. Um, so people essentially thought that beta cells just declined over time and there was nothing we could do about it. So when people get type 2 diabetes, unfortunately, within 10 years, the majority have to go on insulin. And so it's always been thought that regardless of what you do, whether you give metformin, whether you give any other medications, people are going to end up on insulin because the beta cells failed. Then bariatric surgery came along. So this is the gastric bypass. And what was observed was that people with type 2 who underwent this surgery um, got totally normal glucose and could come off their medications within 24 to 48 hours. And so we've got the research world thinking, well, oh my goodness, what on earth is this doing? How are people curing apparently their type two diabetes? And one of the hypotheses was about the caloric restriction, because if you have bariatric surgery, you often go on a liver reduction diet prior to the surgery. So this is a two-week period where you might have 800 calories a day. You then fast before the, the surgery. After the surgery, you can't eat properly. You go on a, a clear liquid diet where you're having two, 300 calories maybe, and then you gradually start increasing your food intake. So there's a long period where you're essentially, we can even call it semi-starvation. And so it got the research world interested in, well, maybe that's what's doing it. Maybe it's somehow giving the body a rest and the, the beta cells can come back to life. And so there have now been, I mean, 15, 20 years of studies on this Um, And in one of those studies, they took obese people with type 2 diabetes. Over a seven-day period, they gave them 400 calories a day. So you don't lose that much weight in seven days, even if you're having 400 calories. So these people lost about 1.3 kilograms. You wouldn't expect any reduction, significant reduction in glucose from that. But they saw normalization of glucose and restoration of um, beta cell function. Incredible. And so there have been other studies that have tried to tease out this effect. Like, is it the weight loss itself or is it the caloric restriction? And what it looks like is the two contribute independently. So what people are trying to do now in in, um, primary care, um, we had the direct style uh, study that came out last year where they put people on. It wasn't strictly a very low energy diet because people were on about 800 to 900 calories. They followed this diet for a period between two, three, four months. It was quite individual. Once people met their target, they then transitioned to food intake and were aiming for weight loss maintenance. Um, And in that study, it was people of type 2 diabetes of short duration, but 86% of people who lost 15 kilograms or more got remission of their type 2. So it certainly seems that massive weight loss, and it needs to be certainly above 10 kilograms, can get remission of established type 2 by restoring beta cell function Um, but this unbelievably has not been tested in pre-diabetes and I think it should be um, because it most of the data shows and this is true of bariatric surgery the longer you have type 2 the less likely you are able to get remission and the less likely the beta cells are able to wake up. Now of course pre-diabetes is early early type 2 so I would bet my bet my house, frankly, on um, a very low energy diet type intervention, um, really restoring beta cell function in people with pre diabetes.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, fascinating stuff. And you know, of course, when we start to implement some of these strategies that are terrific in the short term or in a, a supervised setting, how, how do we shift clients over into establishing? that that habit that routine of a new dietary approach because you know as you noted in, in these trials you know dropout rates are, are a real problem right anywhere from sort of 30 to 50 percent um, so how do, how do we how do you think we can help people sort of transition into a plan that suits them um, even if we're using some of these more aggressive strategies like some you know very low energy diets initially
1: Sure. I mean, first of all, let me reiterate the great thing about pre-diabetes, and we don't fully understand why this is, is there is a legacy effect. So if you lose weight and then regain it, your risk is still lower than had you never lost weight at all. Um, so this is a message I always reiterate.
0: Great news for clients, for sure.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Um, obviously, the longer you can maintain weight loss, the better. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, the whole, holy grail in, in weight loss and, and obesity is successful weight loss maintenance. Um, and this is really where personalization is key. And also, in the context of these, these trials that we have so, in the UK, we have the NHS Diabetes Prevention Program. So, it's a formal program, people sign up for nine months. Um, And basically what the data shows is the more face-to-face or individualized support you can give for the longest duration, that's what predicts um, successful weight loss maintenance. So there has to be a lot of support. Um, And it's worth mentioning indirect. So this was done in primary care. Um, People lost 15, on average, 15 kilograms. They were able to maintain that pretty much for 12 months. But they were seen individually individually. Every two weeks, every month, by um, a qualified person. Um, and that's how formally you get good weight loss. Um, nevertheless, there is a lot of encouraging um, data coming through from remote style options. So we had Virta in the US. Um, that was a, a study, or it was a program, but they've produced data on it showing that a ketogenic type approach with lots of quite frequent um even daily support to follow a ketogenic diet seems to be really effective um, in that study. It wasn't randomised, but people lost 15 kilograms. Um, some people or actually nearly half of people came off their insulin completely. Um, so that looks to be an approach that can work um, in the U- UK. We have data coming through from a digital diabetes prevention program so this is basically the same program that's delivered in person but it's delivered um, via an app and via um, the web um, that seems to have uh, pretty good results and especially for younger people um so i think there's no right way of doing this and there's certainly no magic pill um unfortunately right now the majority of people who try to lose weight will regain it uh, within five years um and ultimately, and no one likes to hear this, until we change our environment, um, we're, we're not going to succeed in addressing the obesity um, epidemic, unfortunately.
0: 100%. And I'm definitely going to circle back to the food environment question here again in a minute. Um, but I just want to ask you another question around sort of the importance of the pulsatile and first insulin responses in this story of type 2 diabetes. Sure. Could you unpack that a little bit for listeners?
1: Yes. So, so. Insulin secretion is is quite hard to explain because it could mean anything. I mean, basically, you're saying the insulin that's released postprandially. Um, But what's really important, seemingly for normal physiology, is something we call the first phase insulin secretion. Um, It can basically be defined as the amount of insulin that is secreted in the first 10 minutes following a rise in blood glucose. So basically, normally, let, let's say when you eat, your pancreas, if it's healthy, is very efficient at detecting any change in blood glucose concentration. So the moment your pancreas is able to detect that your blood glucose has gone up even 0.3 millimoles per litre, you get this really um, powerful insulin spike. And it's where your insulin goes up really fast, really high um, in the first 10 minutes. And that's called the first phase insulin response. Um, So often people use insulin spike in a negative sense, um, like, oh, you shouldn't eat carbs because it will cause an insulin spike. And this is a really this is a misunderstanding of physiology, because having an insulin spike that goes up and then comes down very quickly um, is a very effective way of managing postprandial glucose concentrations, because the moment your insulin goes up, it shuts down hepatic glucose output. So your liver no longer releases glucose, which it does in the fasting state. It also um, causes glucose to be um, taken up into the muscles very quickly and very efficiently. Um, It stops lipolysis. So if you're healthy and insulin sensitive, having a a marked insulin peak is very important for controlling postprandial glucose um, and postprandial fat metabolism. What happens early on in type 2, we see this in pre-diabetes, the first phase insulin response is basically halved. So yes, you get a response, but it's not this peak that you'd see in healthy people. Um, and by late stage type 2, this differs between people, but it might be 10 years after diagnosis, there's barely a blip. So if you try to measure the first phase insulin response, you can barely see a blip. Um, And let me just reiterate the way we measure this. It's very difficult to measure, which is why we previously haven't known so much about it, is that you can really only get a picture of how well the beta cells are working by either using um, an intravenous glucose tolerance test. So this is like an oral glucose tolerance test, but you inject the glucose into a vein, um, or a hyperglycemic clamp. Um, And this I mean, on average, they can be three, three, four hundred pounds um, in the UK per clamp um, all in. Um, So they're very difficult to do. They're quite time consuming um, and they're expensive. But they do tell us important things about beta cell function. Um, So that's first phase insulin. Um, And I think you mentioned pulsatile insulin release. Yep. Um, So this actually is even less studied than the first phase insulin response. Um, And so pulsatile insulin secretion basically refers to how insulin in the healthy uh, physiological state is released in a pulsatile fashion. Um, So it looks like the pulses might be five to seven minutes apart. Um, And basically, it's just insulin going up and going down and going up and going down. Um, And this is quite normal in endocrinology. So a lot of the hypothalamic hormones do have a similar pulsatile insulin secretion. Um, but its importance is very clear in, or we know that from studies where um, researchers have infused insulin into a vein in a pulsatile fashion, and then they've infused insulin into a vein, the same concentration of insulin, but flat. So removing the, the peaks and troughs. Mm-hmm. And what those data showed is that if you infuse insulin Flat, you basically cause insulin resistance, certainly in the liver. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, whereas if you you infuse the same concentration in the pulsatile fashion, it reduces the insulin resistance. Um, the 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 physiology behind how is pretty incredible. How the pancreas itself secretes insulin in this pulsatile fashion isn't fully understood but you can even see an isolated islet cells so if you take out the islets and you look at them um, in vitro you know kind of on the bench Mm -hmm. you can see this almost intrinsic pulsatile secretion Um, so it's pretty fascinating we don't know yeah don't don't know too much about how it goes wrong but certainly that seems to be a a defect early in type 2 and in fact you can detect a loss of pulsatile insulin secretion in normal glycemic relatives of people with type two diabetes. So someone who's got totally normal glucose, but just has a mum or dad with type two, you already see this loss in the pulsatile insulin uh, secretion.
0: That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, and, and Nicola, where's the potential application here with technology, the use of continuous glucose monitoring systems, um, especially as a proxy for insulin output? Um, oh, what, are, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? And we're, we're...
1: Yeah, this is tough. I mean, I love CGM. CGMs have really changed, certainly the way I manage a lot of my patients. Um, but unfortunately, insulin is so important, whether it's insulin or C-peptide. Um, so C-peptide is basically, it's released at the same time of it as insulin, but it's not taken up by the tissues in the same way. So C-peptide can be a useful marker for insulin secretion. Unfortunately, there are no ways yet of measuring insulin and C-peptide, um, easily and outside of a lab, um, that will change the game. If someone can figure out a way to measure insulin or C-peptide, the way we measure glucose, that will change the landscape. Um, I mean, I, re- I really genuinely hope there are teams working on this, um, cause it's such an important question. Um, so in, in terms of the Certainly CGM, I like CGMs because I think they demonstrate the effect of foods on on blood glucose levels. Um, I think it empowers patients to see that and I think it helps them, them manage their either pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes that way. Um, but I would like to patients to be able to do that with insulin too. Um, but maybe, I think that's probably 10 years away.
0: Yeah, that would be definitely an incredible breakthrough. And as you mentioned, I think CGMs are terrific... A learning tool for patients, just to for them to really put their finger on well, what's happening in, in in the blood in reaction to different foods, and I think for a lot of folks it's a pretty big eye opener to see some of these responses to things that they, you know, maybe it may have taken for granted or hadn't realized, and so definitely um, uh, a very useful tool. But if we if we come back to this idea of food environment, which is obviously massively important, um, you mentioned the weight loss success of folks is not very good you know regain within five years almost across the board all of these protocols when we start to see this ability to get into a caloric deficit to help with weight loss we know we can do it we just can't help clients and patients maintain it um so are we just you know is it it doom and gloom here are we stuck with this food environment how can we start to shift uh things to help folks out
1: Sure, I mean, so so let me just reiterate in terms of, of losing weight and weight regain, I mean yes, the food environment is huge, and we'll just come to that in just a sec. but it is important to illustrate we we now know a lot about physiology um in particular ap- appetite hormones, and there's clear data that when you lose weight, all of the hormones that make you want to eat increase for sure um and and those effects seem to be maintained certainly up to a year after you lose weight, so I think it's important to let people know when they feel hungry and when they're just craving for food after they lose weight, that is, is a kind of a normal physiological response. And that's one of the reasons why it makes sustained weight loss maintenance so challenging. Um, but certainly, certainly the food environment is huge. And <clears throat> Like when I talk to my colleagues about, I mean, I think the diabetes prevention program we have here is terrific, but you know, imagine if you just attended a, an hour long session, you're really excited. You've lost some weight. Um, and you walk down the high street after the session and there are seven or eight different places where food smells are wafting out, um, uh, advertising lots of cheap palatable food for, um, you know, one pound 50, you can eat your dinner, you don't need to prepare it. You know, human beings are human beings. We work long hours, we're tired, we don't have much time.
0: Stress levels are high.
1: (laughs) Stress levels are high, sure, and we're easily tempted. Um, And in that kind of situation, all of the education in the world um, unfortunately isn't going to change our um our natural human responses to the environment around us um but I, I do have some optimism and we've we've seen the sugar tax um i mean that was kind of a no brainer in the sense that no one needs sugar it uh, doesn't have any nutrients um it's pretty terrible for kids, especially when it's in uh, liquid uh, drinks. You know, some kids in the States are having 25% of their calories from coke.
0: Yeah, um, so shocking, isn't it?
1: Absolutely, yeah. So so like I'm really pleased to see that. Um, and I think there is a growing public understanding that in some ways we've been duped by food manufacturers. Um, you know, advertising foods as healthy. Um and, and quite cynically using health claims to market their products. I think there's growing understanding that we have to be, as consumers, more cynical about our foodscape. Um, but the, the real thing is, is going to be further um, political changes. I mean, so, so Darish uh, Mozafarian at Tufts has some terrific ideas on this. Um, I mean, quite clearly, to change food intake, um, you need point of sale. Either taxation or incentives. So, for example, where researchers have lowered the prices of fruit and vegetables in a canteen, you can immediately see people start consuming more of those products. If they then increase the price of fruit and vegetables, people consume fewer of those products. So, certainly, pricing is going to influence food intake. Um, And what I would like to see, and it's a political question, um, and it's that's not my role, but I, I think this was the kind of thing that would work, is that when you go to a food outlet, stuff like chips or fries are, let's say, $3 or $4, whereas the vegetables or the oily fish is heavily subsidised. Um, now, I'm not experienced in this area at all, but like I say, Professor Mosafarian I think, has some very realistic ideas, um, some very implementable ideas. And it's going to be a case of changing, unfortunately, the law. Um, and this is going to take a lot of, of public pressure too. Um, the public have to be in on this. Um, obviously, the politicians—we um, certainly have this in the UK. Um, they, they work with, and I think they, in certain certain circumstances, they should. They should work with food industry. Um, but food industry is certainly way too powerful. Um, they have. We've seen with the sugar tax how much the beverage industry is fighting the sugar tax because guess what? They know that it's going to reduce their their sales. Um, and so the politicians, frankly, we're not going to get policy changes or legislative changes unless there is public pressure behind um, these decisions. Um, but but certainly, changing the foodscape by sensible taxation um, would be a, a useful strategy, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I totally agree, and it's uh, it's amazing, just sort of a metaphor. And you know, driving off the highway in Canada or in America somewhere, you go to a service station, and it's literally nothing but packaged processed foods. You've got you know, options of just sort of the fast food chains. And if we use our same example of Spain here, you know, you pull off the highway and you've got this little cafeteria that has freshly made food and fish and vegetables and all these things. And so, as you mentioned, that food environment can, if if we can modify it, it has just a massive role in terms of the behaviors of of folks and what they choose to eat. So uh, I like your ideas. I'll be definitely keep in touch to see what Dr. Mozafarian is up to. And uh, listen, Nicola, I also appreciate you taking the time here. So I want to be respectful of your time. Um sure. so, so last question for you. I know yeah. you know doctors, practitioners listening in, you know, type 2 diabetes, if for you know, even for patients when they look at the last four decades, I mean, we're into epidemic levels, obesity, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease. So, you know, in this area around nutrition as a prevention or reversal for type 2 diabetes, what are some of those principles or or some of your suggestions that you would um Give for maybe first, you know, practitioners, and second to to clients as just sort of maybe simple heuristics to help get things back on track.
1: I mean, certainly, so that the primary thing for prevention or management is weight loss, um, and the more the better. Um, a, 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 we, I think we what we've learned over the past ten years is we can be a lot more radical. Um, patients are a lot more capable. Um, and eager for more radical interventions than I think we ever thought they were. Um, So certainly my message to the GPs I work with, don't be scared of low carb. Um, That can be a great way to lose weight and manage blood glucose. Don't be scared of meal replacements. Um, So my message is basically anything that works for a patient themselves to lose weight um, certainly will help prevent and manage type 2 diabetes Um, At the same time, the second principle I would say is we can't forget um, the good old fashioned message of stuff like fruits and vegetables and variety. Um, Weight loss is key, but we need to think about the long term health. So I would say, whatever diet anyone is on, if you're on a very low energy diet or a low carb diet, get some non starch veggies in. So, green leafy vegetables, salads, etc. They're going to help the gut microbiome, they're going to help long term health. and I would say, I mean, the the, the third thing I would say, work um, closely with um, your academic colleagues and actually collect data and see what's working. Um, I think what's driven a lot of um, primary care and, and changes in the di- type 2 diabetes landscapes has been patients and patients measuring their own outcomes and actually going to their GPs and saying, look what I've achieved.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And it's a uh technology is helping with that and it's definitely hopefully on the horizon we'll start to see some some shift in this and nicola i always appreciate uh, you appreciate your great insights and you taking the time here today so where can people stay connected with you and keep up with all your fantastic research
1: oh i mean so i'm very active on twitter um so i am dr underscore underscore there are two underscores guess um and i i do a lot of talks so i'm doing a talk in dublin i think on the 24th of november where i'll be talking about all things um diabetes or type 2 diabetes um so i do pop up and every now and again happy to take questions on twitter um so just get in touch
0: phenomenal we'll definitely include uh twitter links and links to the paper discussed here in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast thanks for everyone else tuning in if you have any questions for nicola or want to leave a comment on today's episode i'd love to hear from you you can reach out on facebook instagram or twitter at drbubs. And of course, if you enjoy the show, please take a minute, subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, or your favorite pod catching platform. Thanks again, everyone, and see you guys all next week.